We are in a series of sermons. I think, I think three sermons have already been preached. This is the fourth in a, in a series from the book of James. And uh, uh, that's what we're looking at this morning. Uh, get to the reading of it in a minute. But uh, I was a pastor in North Alabama for a number of years, and uh, at our church, our church had as one of its ministries a Christian school, and it, uh, you know, it was a quite good school, it still is, an uh, excellent school, and we were always consistently among the top five uh, school systems in the state of Alabama academically, and uh, from the time when we were just K through fourth, now they're K through 12. But uh, uh, we, we always rank up in the top five in, in the state. And the uh, question is, how do you know that? How do you know you're in the top five in the state? And the answer is the Stanford Achievement Tests, uh, which uh, told us what we had to know about our students, also about our teachers and about our administration, as well as our curriculum. Imagine, if you can, a school without tests, without exams, without quizzes, without papers, all of those things. How on earth would you know if anyone's learning anything? How would you know if anyone's teaching anything? Here's my point. God uses your trials in this life to prove that you're His. Now, here's our text from uh, the letter of James at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains, who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Lord, you have spoken through your servant James. You spoke to the church in the first century by these words. And you, O Holy Spirit, who gave these words, 
have seen to their preservation over the centuries and the millennia and brought them to us this morning. O Lord, may we hear and may we act upon them to the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. A child, in the first place, can bring you blessing. Having said that, let me immediately make two further statements. It's already been said in this sermon series that trials come in all sizes and intensities. And when I say what I said and am going to say, I'm in no way minimizing your particular trial. Either the ones in the past, or the ones you're facing in the present, or that which is yet to come. Second, I have been preaching this sermon to myself for the last several weeks. That's it. Let's read verse 12 again. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. A trial, you see, is a test to be stood. The, the trial isn't the blessing. Standing steadfast under the trial is. Let me give you two examples. Old Testament. Abraham. The Bible says there in Abraham 22, God tested Abraham. Here's how he did it. Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Your son, your only son, burned him on the altar. The next word, after what I just read, the next word you need to underline in your Bibles. So, Abraham rose the next morning, early, saddled his donkey, and took his son Isaac, and went to the place of which God told him. And you know the story. There he built an altar. There he piled up the stack of wood. There he bound his son, his only son, whom he loved, Isaac. And he raised his knife. And was about to use it. When the voice came, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy. For now I know that you fear God. And then I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Second example, 
New Testament, Jesus Christ. His pretty much whole life was a trial, but there are some particular ones that stand out, don't they? In the wilderness, at the very beginning of his public ministry, when he was led out by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil. And he was. But he passed the test by not yielding. And the Father's will, and again, excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself. And near the end of his ministry, he's in the garden. The apostles fall asleep. He's on his knees and he's praying to the Father with an intensity so that he sweated blood. Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. And he passed the test. And the Lord's will was done. And the Father's will was this, for Jesus to face further trial of the cross, so that he might be raised up to glory and seated at the right hand of God the Father in the heavens and rule. They were tested and they were proven. You know, still the best example there is of this testing, the crucible, where precious metal is put to be tested and proven and to melt out all of the impurities, you know that. You know the whole story and its application. They were tested, and you will be too. And maybe you're in the midst, maybe you've just begun testing, or maybe you've just come out of a period of testing, but you will be tested. And the question is, for you and for me, will we gain the crown? And it's not a crown like maybe you're picturing. It's the laurel wreath. It's a crown of laurel wreaths. You remember what they did with it? They placed it on the head of the victors, the winners in, we'd call them the Olympics. It's also placed on the head of the victors in military conquest. You know the picture of Julius Caesar. You've seen it a million times in your life. Wearing the laurel crown. If God promises to all that love him, all who pass the test, who prove their love to God by keeping their eyes fixed on Him throughout their trial. A trial can bring blessing, but on the other hand, that same trial can bring you disaster. We, we seem to be hardwired to deny our sin and our sinfulness, don't we? It all started in the garden. 
you know the story, Adam and Eve there, and the fruit of the tree, and they eat it, and then they realize they're guilty, and they go off and hide. But God will not let them be. He comes to them in their sin. What's going on, Adam? What's up, Eve? Why are you hiding? What have you done? Have you eaten of the tree? And you remember their response? The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Woman, you gave me God, and look what she's done. She gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Eve then chimes in. The serpent. The serpent. He deceived me. And I ate. Neither one of them denied their sin. They just shifted the blame for it. They weren't to blame for their sin. The woman was. And God gave him the woman. Or the serpent was. Who made the serpents. But the sin problem, the sin problem lay within themselves. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, I'm not for a minute saying that all of our desires are always evil. Uh, it's obvious. We desire food. We don't get food, we get hungry. There's hunger. And, and if, if we didn't have hunger, we might not eat, we probably wouldn't eat. And if we don't eat, what happens? We become malnourished. We become malnourished enough, we die. It's not the hunger. Hunger is not evil, it's good and helpful and necessary. We have a sex drive. If your parents just stop and just go one generation before you, ponder this. If your parents had not had that sex drive, we wouldn't be here talking about it this morning. It's not a bad thing. It's not inherently evil, you see. But if unbridled, our hunger can lead us into gluttony, our sex drive can lead us into all manner of sin, fornication, adultery, and so forth. <coughs> Satan knows that. He's well aware of that. When Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, every one of those temptations was a legitimate desire. The temptation to Jesus was to meet that desire the wrong way. And that's what Satan was holding up in front of him. Is it wrong? Does it desire a glass of wine? If you're going to drink to drunkenness, is it wrong to desire a spouse? 
if you're going to take someone else's. See how it works? The, the desires in us. Satan tempts us to satisfy it wrongly. I'm going to give you a beautiful picture of this. I'm not going to ask one of the people I'm going to name here in a second to stand, but most of you know him. And I have not asked for permission to do this. I hope he gives it to me. But it's like, it's like Keith Cranfield and Josh Martin in a boat, in Jesus, somewhere around the mouth of the Mississippi River, up in the marsh, out in the bay, in the river, wherever. Casting. Casting. Bumping, making a jump, reeling, slow, fast. Yeah, giving it this luring, enticing, the redfish and the specks or whatever it is they're fishing for uh, to come and, and, and take the bite of bait. It's playing on their hunger. It's playing on their natural good desire. You know? And there they are, working and working and working. And if the fish, uh, you know, if the fish isn't hungry, he's probably not going to bite. But if he is, and if he does, he's taken away. He joins the fish fry. Verse 15, just so. Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, someone has said, the best way of understanding that is a fixed, when it becomes a fixed habit, brings forth death. Disaster is struck. That's the fruit of this trial. This trial can be either a proving ground of your faith or it's flaming failure. This trial, your present undergoing, the one that's about to arise. Shows the potential for either blessing or desire or, or disaster, glory or ruin. It all depends. It all depends on how you perceive it. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Verses 16 and 17. How could James say that? How could he write that about the trials? You know, it's right in the middle of this stuff where he's talking about trials and, and, and temptations and tests and all this. How could he change subjects like that? Or is he somehow or other calling a trial a good gift, a perfect gift? How can he do it? Listen to Paul. Listen well. Paul writes to the Romans, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. 
This trial is part of that purpose, but it's part of a grander purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's glorious. That's beautiful. Until you remember Isaiah 53. It says that the Son is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And you and I are being conformed into his image. Only way to see the glory of Jesus is to know something of the trials of Jesus. Predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among, among many brothers. We're in a brotherhood of suffering and grief. I hate to pour water on your imagination of what being in Christ is. It's a glorious thing. Yes, it is. It's a wonderful thing. Yes, it is. It's life and, and hope and everything else. But it's also a fellowship of trials and testings. But then you read on. And those whom he predestined to be conformed to images of image of Jesus, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And that's the lens. That's the lens through which you and I must look at the trials of this life. Or listen again to Peter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And I started to eliminate some of these verses, but I left them in. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. Here's the right perception of your trial, that's what I'm trying to say. This is the right perception. God has given or allowed this trial to prove that I am His. My Father has given or allowed this trial Show I am his son, his daughter, his well-beloved child. Some of your trials are matters of life and death. And I don't minimize that. What I'm saying is simply that his children stand the test.
He gives a good reason. James uses that phrase, brings forth, in both verse 15 and verse 18. Sin brings forth death. That's the first truth. Then he contrasts with it, God brings forth life. By his word, enlivened by his spirit within us. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The opening and closing of our passage. But now listen to the author of Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and oftentimes we think of that cloud of witnesses, oh, they're all up there, all the saints up there looking down on me, watching me as I go through this life. That may or may not be true. It ain't what the writer was saying. What he's saying is we have these witnesses, these people who went before us, who have stood the trial. They're witnesses and they're examples to us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand the throne of God. You and I follow a long line of those who have gone before us, who have suffered through trials in this life and stood steadfast. They are the first fruits that James here is talking about. The first fruits of that which is to come and we're in that which is to come. But you and I also our first fruits to the generation following us and the generation following that and the generation following that. But then I have to say this. Maybe. Maybe, just maybe. You have been tried. Failed the test. I confess I do every day. What do you do now? I failed. What do I do now? You turn to Jesus again. You repent. Again. You rest in Him. Again. And again. And again. And again. And again. He stood the test. In the wilderness. In the garden. 
on the cross. All for